Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. So as Nathan said, I am Jeremy Moore, pastor of discipleship here at Southridge. It's great to be in the same room with you if you are here in the same room with me. And if you're watching online, then I want to welcome you too virtually. It's awesome that you're joining us virtually. So some of you might be into brain research. Um, Brain research actually tells us that our right brain is the hemisphere that's responsible for our, the, the range, it governs the range of our relational life. So it's responsible for governing everything from who we love to our ability to calm ourselves to um, how we react and our, our identity, both individually and communally. Here's a little fun fact. Did you know that your right brain actually operates six times faster than your left brain? Of course, your left hemisphere is responsible for reasoning and it's responsible for logic, but your right brain actually operates six times faster. It's a super processor. And so what that looks like is this. You're sitting in a room, you're hearing people say things. Your right brain is actually processing six times faster. How do I feel in this room? Do I feel secure? Like who are my people in this room? Who's, who's us and who's them in this room? Like, are there any threats? And so what tends to happen is, um, God's spirit is shaping us, every part of us. And so our right brains can be these beautiful uh, avenues for God to, um, to, for God to shape us and for us to bless people and to glorify him. But we all have our moments. We all have our moments. You have your moment. I have my moments where your bright brain just sort of like whatever your raw reaction is, is like how you react. And so, uh, I've noticed particularly as culture has been tense, there's been lots of cultural tensions over the past two years, that more than once I would be in a setting with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And something like this would happen. Like we would be talking about something else and then all of a sudden somebody would make a social or political statement and it would just trigger strong emotions in somebody else. It's like the right brain would kick in. They immediately drew conclusions and reacted. And oftentimes that reaction was um, like passionate judgment or divisive polarization of the person or their opinion or the perceived side that they were on. So we all definitely have moments like that. And we could, any of us could sort of easily be in that position, almost given the biology of our brain, like without the help of God's spirit and the grace that he pours into our lives. And so Jesus, this morning, uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at a passage where Jesus addresses this very thing. He talks about his vision for oneness in the body of Christ. He talks about his dream that his community, his people would be one, that it would not be a community where the culture is polarization and division. And it asks us to consider this question. What is it that makes us as the body of Christ a common us? Um, Is it social or political opinions or is it something more significant and more weighty than that? So we're going to consider that question this morning But sort of getting there 
Jesus actually takes us on a little bit of a journey to arrive at this idea of his dream for oneness. What he actually does is he addresses four different things in the passage, John 17, verses 6 to 12. I'm going to kind of, in turn, just take you on a little journey through those four things. We're going to talk about each of them. So take your Bible, turn to John 17, verses 6 to 12. John 17, verses 6 to 12. If you brought your Bible, just kind of flip there. If um, you're using the Bible in front of you, under the seat in front of you, it's actually on page 1680 in that Bible. So if you just want to grab one of those, then feel free to do that. So in John 18, Jesus gets arrested. All right. So if you were to sort of like read John 18, the soldiers come, Jesus gets arrested. He gets tried. He gets crucified. John 17 is the final chapter before that happens. In John 17, Jesus prays for the whole chapter. And one of the major focuses of his prayer is oneness, is oneness. But there are the, kind of these four things that he talks about to get there. So first thing he talks to the father about is a puzzling mystery. Jesus talks to the father about a puzzling mystery. Now, I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. See if you can kind of identify what's the puzzling mystery in verses 6 to 8. John 17, verse 6. I have revealed to you those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed you sent me. Now, the, the first thing I want to talk about is there's two reasons in the passage that Jesus says the disciples that are listening to this prayer are the very people that belong to God. Jesus expresses two reasons why these disciples that are hearing him pray this to the Father belong to God. One of them kind of falls into the realm of God's sovereignty, that God is pursuing us in love before we ever thought to pursue him, before we ever took action to pursue him. The other kind of falls into the category of human response, that humans are responding in faith to God's initiating pursuit of love. So take a look at verse 6. Uh, the first thing that Jesus says is that these disciples belong to him because God revealed himself to them. He cleared the spiritual smoke from their eyes. He pursued them in love and showed them who the Father is. He goes on in verse 12 to say not only that, but he kept them in his love. He guarded them. He protected them. So the spiritual attacks of the evil one didn't separate them from the father. They kept them in right relationship with the father. But then in verse 2, he gives another reason, and it kind of almost falls into the realm of human response, our response of faith to God's pursuing love of us. The other reason is that they responded in faith to God's revelation of himself. They responded, and that faith produced action. They obeyed his word. They accepted what he taught. They believed he was who he said he was. So here's a puzzling mystery that the text brings to the surface. Are you ready? The puzzling mystery is 
that from beginning to end, the story of our salvation is a story that's a beautiful integration of God's pursuing love and our response of faith. That both of those things somehow integrate. Now, I know that this brings up questions, intellectual questions, and they're the kind of questions that people often grapple with in small groups. You know, as soon as this kind of point is made, it's like, look, we're reading the Bible here, and it says, like, like we're chosen in him, in love. Or we're reading the Bible, and it talks about how, like, look, by faith you're saved. It's your faith response. Both of these things are kind of operating in the text of the Bible. And then people, people start to say, like, well, yeah, but if this, and what that, and if this, and what, how does this all work? And they, they almost want, we want an intellectual um, explanation of how it all fits together. Now, we were doing that very same thing in teaching meeting. Uh, on Mondays, we have teaching meeting, and our teaching team was actually talking about, all right, like, what are we going to talk about with this passage, and what are some of the things that will be helpful to surface? And we sort of got into a discussion like that. Well, how does this all fit together? How does uh, human response fit with God's sovereignty? And then uh, Sam Gatto, who was expertly playing the keyboard here this morning, he was in the meeting. And so we get to the end of the meeting, and we're like, all right, great. We're like, break. Great meeting. And then Sam goes, wait, 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 wait. So, like, what's the answer? <laughs> He's like, what's the answer? And then, uh, and, and then I was like, Sam, I'll give it to you in three words. I don't know. I was like, I don't know. But I think I'm, I'm in pretty safe ground saying that because I would say that Scripture leaves it in the realm of mystery. Uh, my conviction is, is that Scripture leaves it in the realm of mystery, that it acknowledges both of those things as equally true, both God's uh, pursuit of us in love and like our role to respond in faith to him. And I would say this, I would say only God in his infinite wisdom can see how those things beautifully integrate. But I would also say this, I'll kind of throw this out to you. I would also say that like we know deep in our bones that both of those things are true. And I say that because when we talk about the story of our salvation, we acknowledge both. Um, I've been on staff at this church for a little over 12 years and in 12 years, I was trying to think, how many faith stories have I heard? How many of your faith stories have I heard? Probably like over 100, maybe hundreds. And one of the things I've noticed as people tell their faith stories is that both God's sovereignty and human response are involved. People say things in their faith stories like, then God led me to a Bible study, which was a huge turning point for me. You know, they don't just say like, and then I decided to go to, but then God led me to, oh, really? God, like God was sort of like pursuing you in love to sort of steer you to a Bible study or God used my relationship with so-and-so to awaken me to who he is, you know? Um, okay. All right. So, so you chose to be in relationship with that person. Oh no, actually they just sort of came across my path. I really had no control over it, but they were like instrumental in bringing me to faith in Christ. Uh, or, or I went through difficult circumstances and God used it to deepen my relationship with him. Oh, wait, so you chose to enter the difficult circumstances? No, they, like they just came into my life. But God was sovereignly at work drawing me to himself through those circumstances. But people also say other things. They say things like this. Then I realized that Jesus was my savior and I decided to embrace him. People say things like that. I decided to embrace Jesus as my savior. Or I made the decision 
to go to a marked men weekend or a women's walk weekend or join a particular SR group. And God met me there and showed himself to me through that decision. Or um, I see P Pete Gatto in front of me here, my good friend Pete. Pete shared his testimony with us just a number of months ago. And he said, in the midst of drug, drugs and alcohol, I cried out to the Lord and he met me there. He met me there. You know, so people, people talk about these decisions that they made to respond to God's initiating love and faith. So we may not be able to wrap up this mystery with neat intellectual explanations of how it all fits together. But, but I, think, I think this, I think like we talk about it all the time. We acknowledge that it's equally true that God's pursuing us in love and that, like, that we have a response of faith that, that, um, that initiates God's blessing in our life, that sort of throws open the door to God's grace flowing into our lives. And so we, we sort of can't give it a neat little explanation about how, how it all fits together. But I would say this, I'll say, I'll say this, and then we'll leave it there. I would say, here's why it matters. Here's why it matters. It matters because if the story of our salvation is only a story of our human response, then the result is insecurity. It's insecurity because we all have moments where we run from God. We all have moments where we let go of God. And in those moments, we may feel like, well, if it's only human response, like my response like, was not a faithful response to God. Like, is he still running after me? Is God still holding on to me? And I would say, if we take scripture seriously, then God pursued us first. So the answer is absolutely yes. God's running after me. God's holding on to me. He loved me before I ever gave a rip about him. And then secondly, the other side of the coin is, if the story of our salvation is only about God's sovereignty, it tends to lead to complacency. So it tends to give us this attitude where we're like, oh, take, take initiative to grow spiritually. Eh, you know, God's got it. God's got it. You know, he's good. He's going to do what he's going to do. And so the more that we can see, no, no, God created us with the gift of choice. He created us with the freedom to respond to him in faith. And he gave us that freedom in order for us to respond to him in faith so that his grace could flow into our lives. Jesus talks to the Father about a puzzling mystery. Jesus talks to the Father about a puzzling mystery. And then secondly, Jesus talks to the Father about a process-oriented faith. Jesus talks to the Father about a process-oriented faith. Look at verse 8. If you're tracking in your Bible, look at verse 8. Uh, Jesus prayed, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So let me ask you this. How long did they know with certainty that Jesus uh, was who he said he was? How long was their faith certain? Well, if you look back at chapter, chapter 16, they knew for about 12 verses. So like 12 verses ago is sort of the first time that they said, now we know for certain that you are who you say you are. So look at chapter uh, 16, verse 30. In this verse, Jesus' disciples say to him, now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. So they've known with certainty 
that Jesus is who he said he is for about 12 verses. Preceding this, there's like this whole process of questioning and asking and wrestling. And Jesus is patient with them through that. He is committed to them. He's patient with them. He enters into the mess of their questions and their puzzlements. And he sort of walks with them to this realization of certainty of faith in him. And so you might be here this morning and you might be saying to yourself, like, I'm checking this thing out. Like, I'm not sure what I think of this whole relationship with Jesus thing. I'm not sure who God is. I'm not sure if the Bible's true. I'm not sure if I'm going to take the next step to embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I would just simply say, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here thinking about these things, wrestling with these things, exploring these things. We're so glad you're here. Your questions are not merely tolerated at Southridge. Your questions are welcomed. No matter how messy, your questions are welcomed. And I would say this, I want to encourage you. If you are deeply wrestling with spiritual questions, it is already evidence of God's pursuing love in your life. Hard hearts don't wrestle deeply with spiritual questions. Hard hearts have this posture. I'm good. I'm all good. I know everything I need to know. Got it figured out. If you're here this morning and you're deeply wrestling with spiritual questions, you're deeply wrestling with your next step and whether it will be faith in Jesus, you're welcome here. Uh, Your questions are not just tolerated. They are welcomed. God is already at work in your life. God is patient with you. God is committed to you. God's coming after you to draw you to himself. And um, we want to walk with you in that at this church. Secondly, there might be somebody here this morning who your faith is already in Christ. You can point to a time where you came to a certain faith in Christ and you confessed that. Uh, You said that out loud to God, maybe in the midst of others. But right now, that seems far from you. You're going through a time of struggle, of doubt, of disappointment. If that describes you this morning, then I just simply want to encourage you with the fact that these followers of Jesus, those who went on to lead the kingdom movement of God, When Jesus gets arrested, they scatter. Jesus said, and Nathan was sharing with us a couple weeks ago, he said, you're going to scatter to your homes. You're going to leave me alone. God is not going to leave me alone, but you're going to leave me alone. You know, the father will be with me, but you guys will scatter. And then to add injury to insult, Peter denies Jesus three times. And yet these are the men who went on to lead Jesus's kingdom movement. He was patient with them. He was gracious with them. He was committed to them. He restored them. He put their gifts to good use for his kingdom. And so if you're here today and somehow you have gotten the picture that like you come to that moment of certain faith in Christ and that's just like the product, it's the end game. Know that faith is a process. It's a process that sometimes has some pretty serious ups and some pretty serious downs. And God is patient. He's walking with you through that. God is committed to you as he was to his first disciples. I would also say this to you. I challenge you, if you're going through a time of struggle, of disappointment, of doubt, I would challenge you to verbalize that to God. You may think, well, that's the last thing. 
That's the last thing I would do. Last thing I would do is verbalize that to God. God doesn't want to hear that. He just wants my certain faith. And I would just simply say this. If you look at how patient Jesus was with these first disciples in just walking through that messy process, I, I would just simply say, that, say this to you. Maybe your struggle, your doubt, your disappointment is not a roadblock in your relationship with God. As you kind of lean into that, and as you push through that roadblock, maybe the, maybe the roadblock is a bridge. Maybe the roadblock is a bridge to deeper trust and to deeper faith, to deeper relationship. And then I would just simply say this. Um, there is something that's very holy that happens when you acknowledge this with other brothers and sisters in Christ. When you say to other brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm doubting about. This is what I feel disappointed about. Um, there's something in that moment that opens space, holy space, for there to be transformation, for there to be understanding, for there to be space for God's spirit to do a work. Um, just this last week, a couple days ago, I actually got an email and actually one of the lines in the email was like, this is where I'm at. And I almost feel bad like typing these words. This is where I'm at, but this is where I'm at. There's something that's holy when we acknowledge to brothers and sisters, trusted brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where I'm at. And you get to talk about it and you get to just meet that person there and be there with them. And so I would say this to the listener, when someone says to you, Look, this is where I'm at. This is my struggle. This is my doubt. This is my disappointment. Um, we want Southridge, all of us together, want to work together for Southridge to be a place where people don't just get platitudes and easy answers to, to here's my struggle. But I would just encourage, if you are the listener, I encourage me, I encourage you, when we are the listeners, don't give easy answers. Listen empathize, ask great questions, and only then say to the person, only then say to the person, look, here is how my story kind of intersects with your struggle. Like here in my story is, is, is how it touches on what you're struggling with. And this is what helped me. This is what has kind of helped me to kind of process this stuff and work through it. Jesus talks to the Father about a puzzling mystery. Jesus talks to the Father about a process-oriented faith. And then thirdly, Jesus talks to the Father about an impending mission. An impending mission. Look at John 17, verses 9 to 12. Verses 9 to 12. Jesus says, I pray for them, the disciples. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now we've seen all through this passage, that it's sort of difficult for the disciples to make sense of these little glimpses of what's going to happen next that Jesus says. He kind of like gives them these little snapshots of things that are going to happen next. And if you were sitting there, you would just be like, what? But we have the rest of the story. 
And so the rest of the story, actually, it helps us to make sense of what Jesus is saying here. So after Jesus was crucified and rose again, uh, Luke says that he spent 40 days with the disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. Then he ascended. And before he ascended, he commissioned them to go on a mission. He commissioned them to basically lead his kingdom movement. Um, in Acts 1.8, he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's kind of where they were, the, the city they were in, Judea, Samaria, okay, the local regions, and to the ends of the earth. And that's basically the outline of the book of Acts. Okay? Um, we see the gospel spread in Jerusalem, then the regions beyond Jerusalem, and then the regions beyond the Roman Empire. And this spirit-empowered witness resulted in a movement that today has uh, resulted in a third of the world, roughly a third of the world, professing faith in Jesus Christ, with the numbers rising in the non-Western world. So understanding this impending mission makes sense of a number of things that Jesus says in verses 9 to 12. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. To this, we might say, really? Jesus, you're not, you're not praying for the world? Like we could look at that verse in isolation and say, you don't care about the world, Jesus? You're not going to pray for the world? But in light of the disciples' impending mission, this makes perfect sense. You know, um, we could easily say, like, Jesus, you're just going to pray for your holy huddle that you have kind of gathered for the last three years? But he's about to send them out on a mission, He's praying protection and power for the mission that lay ahead because all nations, tribes, and tongues are going to be invited into life-giving relationship with God through these men that sit in front of him. Then look at verse 11. Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. So again, in the light of the impending mission, this makes perfect sense. We could read this verse and say like, huh, Jesus felt the need to say, like, I'm going and you're going to stay in the world. If the end game was that those guys would be protected just for the sake of being protected, then, like, you know what the best thing to do would be? It would just be like, all right, guys, I'm going back to the Father and I'm bringing you with me. <laughs> I'm just going back to the Father and you're going to be in the safety of his presence and you'll be so protected there. But here's what Jesus is saying. Look, in light of the impending mission, you got work to do in the world. You're going to need the protection and the power of the spirit that's coming to live in you because you've got work to do for me in the world. There's a life-giving mission that's going to offer forgiveness and restore relationship with God to the world. And then verse 12, Jesus makes perhaps the most difficult statement that he makes in John 17 in verse 12. So let me read the verse. It's kind of a difficult verse. So verse 12, while I was with them, Jesus prays, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So you say, like, who's the one doomed to destruction? He's talking about Judas. He's talking about Judas. If you know the story, Judas betrayed Jesus to the religious leader for 30 pieces of silver. And so he calls him the one doomed to destruction or the ESV says the son of destruction. And so I think... I think this is a difficult verse. I think we have to say, how do we read this? I thought it might be helpful to say, here's how I read this. And maybe I'll start with, here's how I don't read this. Here's how I don't read this. Okay. 
um, sort of aiming to read this in a way that's consistent with the character of God and the rest of Scripture, here's how I don't read this. I don't read it to mean that if only Jesus would have protected and kept Judas like he did the other disciples, then Judas would have chosen better. Somehow implicating God in sort of planning a choice that then he that then Judas was doomed to destruction for choosing. I don't read it that way. I, I don't think that it's consistent with God's uh, just nature. I don't think it's consistent with statements like we read in 2 Peter 3, that God's patient and he's not willing that anyone sh- should perish. Um, he, here's, here's how I do read it. Here's how I do read it. I do read it this way, that God is the only one in his infinite wisdom that can see all paths and all outcomes. And so I don't think there was a version of the story where Judas chose better. Okay, now, I don't fully understand that, but that's my conviction about how to read this verse. And the best way I would explain it is this. Um, Some of you are into, like, Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff. Comic book movies and television shows are really huge right now. I think because of that, this concept of the multiverse or alternate realities is huge. You know, people are kind of talking about that in popular discourse right now. At least nerds like me are. But... um, but I, I think that you can say it this way, okay? There's no alternate reality where Judas chooses better, okay? There's no sort of like what if in the multiverse where Judas chooses better. And uh, God didn't plan that, but God did foresee that. God did weave that into the prophecy of Scripture. And even more than that, even more significantly than that, God did redemptively use the evil choice that was made to bless the world. So it makes perfect sense in light of Judas's, of um, the disciples' impending mission that though Jesus was grieved by Judas's choice, and if you read the gospel narratives, Jesus was grieved by Judas's choice to betray him. But it makes perfect sense that his focus here is not to grieve over the the loss of Judas, but his focus here is to pray for those who will be protected and empowered for the mission that will literally bring multitudes into life-giving relationship with God. So Jesus talks to the Father about a puzzling mystery. Jesus talks to the Father about a process-oriented faith, and Jesus talks to the Father about an impending mission. And then lastly, we've arrived. We've arrived here where we started. Lastly, Jesus talks to the Father about an empowered priority, an empowered priority. So that empowered priority we read about in verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus prays to the Father for power, for protection, that his community would be one, reflecting the oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Why? Because this oneness would be a powerful apologetic to the world, that God is real, and that the Holy Spirit is active in people's lives, changing them beyond their natural ability. Um, 
In two weeks, Nathan will actually preach a message on oneness. Um, If you kind of skip ahead in the passage, Jesus talks all about oneness, like a number of times. He kind of unpacks the whole oneness thing and repeats this idea to the Father of may they be one. And as uh, Nathan mentioned earlier in the service, ultimately where John 17 goes is he says, I don't pray just for the people who are the disciples who are sitting here in front of me. I'm, I'm praying too for the generations of people that come to faith in me through their ministry. And so he talks about his dream for you and I, his dream for the church, that they would be a people of oneness, a people of unity that reflect the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I'm going to let Nathan unpack that for like a message worth of content, but I want to give you a little taste. I want to get the wheels turning. So I'm just giving you a couple of things to think about, and we'll kind of circle back to it in two weeks. So three things to think about regarding oneness. Oneness between brothers and sisters in Christ does not come about by trying harder. It's a spirit-empowered thing. Okay, so you remember that, that situation I was talking about where you're sitting there, your bright brain kicks in, and sort of like you feel like defending, you feel like protecting, you feel like just sort of like defining yourself as us and shoving somebody else into the category of them and kind of, kind of reinforcing that polarized culture in the body of Christ. You're not going to overcome that by trying harder. You're going to overcome that by leaning into God's empowering grace in your life. You're going, to, you're going to overcome that by recognizing that you're not inventing the idea of we should just be nice to each other, okay? What you're actually doing is you're acknowledging that Jesus already said this is what God is doing. Jesus already said this is what God is doing. He's moving people toward greater and deeper unity than just be nice to each other. So, so you're, you're sort of syncing up and leaning into God's Holy Spirit power in order to respond better than polarization and division. Secondly, oneness is not the same as similarity. Oneness is not the same as similarity. All you really have to do to sort of make this point is look at those who Jesus chose as his original 12 who would launch the church. They were sort of this microcosm that was so socially and politically diverse. Have you ever thought about this? Like there almost couldn't be more social and political diversity in the original 11 that would launch the church. Um, A guy, Dan White, makes this point in a good little book called Love Over Fear. Um, He puts it well. I'm just going to kind of sum this up with his comments. So Dan writes this, in the selection of his disciples, Jesus gathered three zealots who were militant nationalists, a tax collector who favored the Sadducee party, six fishermen who lived hand to mouth and were exploited by Roman taxation, one member of the Sicari party, and a wealthy nobleman who was linked to the Pharisees. And then he says, this is scandalous. (laughs) This is scandalous. He called them into the same inner circle, a space that would demand something from everyone. The very makeup of Jesus' first discipleship group was a purposeful message about the kingdom of God. Jesus was starting a polarization-busting movement. And then thirdly, oneness does not mean we have all the same convictions. Oneness does not mean we have all the same convictions. So God's people are not part of a common us because we have the same convictions on the COVID vaccine. We're not part of a common us because we have the same stance on masks. We're not part of a common us because we press all the same buttons when we go in the voting booth. We are part of a common us because through our faith in Jesus, 
We're adopted by our heavenly father. We're co-heirs with Christ. We're indwelled by God's spirit through our common faith in Jesus. Now, it's not that those other things are insignificant. It's not that those aren't good and important discussions. They are not the core. They are not the core. And so when that core is in place, when that core is in place, that our faith is in Jesus, we're adopted by the Father, co-heirs with Christ, indwelled by God's Spirit, then we can have a family discussion with grace and humility about the rest. We can have a family discussion that we have what we need to have that discussion with grace and humility, leaning into the fact that what we share in common in Christ is way more significant and way weightier than any potential difference that we may have. I remember when I was a kid, uh, we sang this song in church called, They'll Know We're Christians by Our Love. Anybody remember that one? <laughs> They'll know we're Christians. By... I think that song almost needs like a resurgence. Like that, that, almost, need, that almost needs kind of like a, um, to come back to like the uh, top 10 in the church. In 1966, this guy, Peter Schultes, wrote the song, We Are One. Uh, They'll know we're Christians by our love. He was inspired by two things. One was the Gospel of John. Secondly, he was inspired by reading that a popular saying of the early church in the 100s, 100s AD, was behold how they love each other. And, and, and he, was, he was moved to write a song that recaptured that. And, and um, many people think that that saying, behold how they love each other, came about because of a letter that this guy wrote to the Roman emperor Hadrian. And it was this guy, Aristides, the Athenian. This guy, Aristides, wrote a letter to the emperor detailing how, how it was true and what it looked like that Christians are a people who love each other. Followers of Jesus love each other, and that's a defining mark of who they are. It's almost impossible to read the words that I'm about to read you and not say, how have we come so far from this? Like, how have we moved so far away that we're so divided over peripheral issues? We're so divided over things like our stance on, like, COVID vaccine or our perspective on critical race theory. Again, these are not insignificant comments, uh, issues, conversations, but they're not the core. They're not the core. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to read you an excerpt from Aristides' letter. And as you hear these words, that's a description of the early church in the 100s. I want you to think about this. Like, how can these words be true again today? I want you to think about this. Um, I want you to consider how we can increasingly be a people who they'll know we're Christians by our love. More than that, more than that, they'll know Christ because they see a living demonstration of his love in us. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and we're actually going to respond by singing the song, They'll Know We're Christians by Our Love. And as they prepare for that, listen to these words that Aristides wrote in one, the 100s. He said, they love one another, 
And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to he who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any who is poor and needy, and if they have no food to spare, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. And they do not proclaim in the ears of the multitude the kind deeds they do, but are careful that no one should notice them. They conceal their giving just as he who finds treasure and conceals it. And they strive to be righteous as those who expect to behold their Messiah and to receive from him with great glory the promises made concerning them. So let, let's respond. I'm going to ask you to stand, and Mike and the team are going to lead us in the song, They'll Know We're Christians by Our Love, inspired by this letter. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored and they'll know we are Christians by our love by our love yes they'll know we are Christians by our love we will walk with each other we will walk hand in hand we will walk with each other we will walk hand in hand and together we'll spread the news that god is in our land and they'll know we are christians by our love by our love yes we'll know we are christians by our love we will work with each other we will work side by side we will work with each other we will work side by side and we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride and they'll know we are christians by our love by our love yes they'll know we are christians by our love and they'll know They'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, we know we are Christians by our love. All praise to the Father from whom all things come, and all praise to Christ Jesus, his only Son. All praise to the Spirit who makes us one, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know 
we are Christians by our love. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Lord, may it be true of us that we will increasingly become a people who those outside of the body of Christ will know we are Christians by our love. More than that, that they'll know you and that they'll come into saving relationship with you through the powerful apologetic of a people that's a living, breathing demonstration of God's love. And so God, um, thank you for the privilege of worshiping together today. Take these words, uh, plant them, grow them, uh, God, thank you for the ways in which it was such a blessing to share uh, worship of you, to share in your spirit this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was so good to worship together and hope to see you again soon.